everyone. Welcome back to A4Our Lives Scientific Spotlight Series. I'm your host, Brenda Eep. Today, we are joined by Dr. Chaska Walton at the Buck Institute for Research on Aging. He'll be sharing how he landed in the longevity field and his current work on giving Alzheimer drugs a second chance at clinical trials. Without further ado, here's Dr. Chaska Walton. Thank you, Chaska, for joining us on our April-I Scientific Spotlight. Thank you for having me. Okay, how I usually begin this is I ask what your education background and how you got involved in science. Yes, my interest in science was more philosophical at first. I was interested in understanding reality and the aspects of reality we might not be able to understand. And this was related to Kant's antinomies, I think you call them like that in English. Yeah, and I progressively switched to extending lifespan and aging. Yeah, so wait, was it, I remember you were saying that you did most of your training or studying psychology first. So what was the reasoning yes. behind that? So I started psychology because I wanted to understand how we cannot think to maybe get a better understanding of reality. But I slowly changed to aging research, and then I was interested in extending longevity. And I figured a good way to do that would be to make myself smarter. So I went into cognitive enhancement, which was one of the programs that they were doing at psychobiology in my college. <laughs> Looked into several compounds and I started developing some alternative theories and different things on the cell cycle and neurons. And I eventually shifted again into the cell cycle and neurons to, which is regenerative medicine. Okay. And you did most of your schooling in Spain. So I know you did a master's, but was that just a leap to do a PhD or did you decide early on you wanted to pursue a PhD? Yes. In Spain, to get to a PhD, there's only a few majors that you can do go from the major directly to a PhD. Most majors require you to do a scientific oriented uh, uh, master's to then access a PhD program. So I had to do a master's from psychology. I went to the master's in neuroscience. And then I started my PhD. Okay. So your path was pretty straightforward. So there was never a time where you wanted to pursue something else other than science or psychology? Not really, because the path I started, I basically went back to school when I was 29. Mm -hmm. So I had already tried many things. That was actually the fourth time I started college. Oh, um, interesting. Yeah, yeah, I needed more maturity, apparently. <laughs> and yes, so I was pretty clear on what I wanted to do and what I did not want to do. Yeah, and things kept working out, so I kept on pushing. Oh, nice! Yeah, a lot of people lose motivation over time, but not you wanted to achieve immortality at some point, right? <laughs> Why not? We've assumed for years and years that centuries or forever, actually, that's not possible. But nature has gifted us with a codable DNA sequence where there are really no rules. Right yeah. now, we can say. We have as much evidence to say it's impossible than to say it's possible. I'm not deciding on which path or which option it is, but I'm definitely not going to accept that we can live yeah. know, 75, 80 years. It might be much more. Yeah. We simply don't know. Yeah, we don't. There's a lot of unknowns. But yeah, I was trying to squeeze an interesting story out of you because there's some stories where, oh, I pursued arts and then I just, I stumbled upon biology, but I see science as a form of art, right? So especially the brain too, it's so complex, which is interesting. Yeah, I was going to say that the level of creativity, like my particular job or projects, the, the level of creativity that they involved is very big. Like it's 
a lot of fun. I personally have drawn all my life and find the same sort of feeling and creating, making drawings and actually having theories and looking online and doing experiments and seeing the theory behind the creative process. It's, it has more rules than just drawing, but yeah, it's similar actually. Yeah. There's a lot of puzzles to piece together, right? Yeah. It's all about how you got there. So how did you find yourself here? How did you find yourself in the United States and the Book Institute? How did that happen? When I switched, I was in the psychobiology department doing cognitive enhancement, but I switched to regulate the cell cycle in neurons. Mm -hmm. And for my PhD, I actually managed to divide primary neurons, which in theory wasn't possible. Uh, there's a lot of misconception on that in neurogenesis. It's really precursor cells that are dividing and producing neurons, and that's very limited. But actual primary neurons are fully developed neurons. Those don't divide. So unless you do some, you know, a lot of things which we did to to them, and we got we actually got neurons to divide, and that's really probably the first time ever. To anyway, the fact that we made neurons divide also made other possibilities that like cellular senescence. So they, they had other features of mitotically capable cells, such mm -hmm. as cellular senescence. So I started when I finished my PhD and cell and, and the cell cycle of neurons, I started pitching projects all over the world. And one of them was cellular senescence. And that's that was before uh, cellular senescence in neurons was accepted, which is only five years ago. Like before the, nobody accepted it. And the funny thing is that we are now talking about senescent neurons all the time. And the evidence that has come from five, four to five years before where nobody accepted it to now is basically nothing. So it's been more like a social trend that's global acceptance. It truly has. I, that's one thing I really know about. And, and it truly has. There's no evidence, no, no convincing evidence that had not existed yet. Yeah. You know, it's interesting that you say that because I remember... Judy was saying that no one believed her either. It was really hard for her to talk about senescence. And then it just exploded one day. And now it's one of the hallmarks, right? The driving forces of aging, underlying mechanisms of biology of aging. I think Judy had a lot of evidence and a lot of hard work proving that. Yeah. The difference, the big difference with senescent neurons is that there's not comparable, there's not landmark articles that you would mm -hmm. say, oh, this is go back and this is definitely definite proof. Yeah, I think the field of neurogenesis too is also controversial trying to promote neurogenesis after a certain stage in life too. So this is the confusion about neurogenesis. So people tend to think that neurogenesis is a regenerative mechanism distributed throughout the brain, but really it's very limited to specific areas in the brain. And it's more of a in the hippocampus region, it's more of a computational mechanism than a regener regenerative mechanism. Then you have some regener regeneration. Sorry, that's hard for me in English. Uh, olfactory bulb, I think it is. Uh -huh. no. At any rate, there is no regeneration in the adult human brain that can cope with even minimal impacts. If not, we wouldn't have these diseases. Like We wouldn't have Alzheimer's. We wouldn't have Parkinson's if there was a mechanism at all that worked. What we do have is we compensate for the loss of neurons with the plasticity of the neurons. The connections can compensate for loss of cells. But new neurons, you could compare to your skin when you cut yourself and you regenerate your tissue. That does not happen in the brain. Yeah, so it's irreversible. It's irreversible. Yeah, and uh, Ramon Cajal was talking about this over 100 years ago. That's actually what we showed during my PhD is that I was using breast cancer mechanisms to get neurons to divide. And we could get them to divide. 
So it's not an absolute fate, but it won't happen under natural conditions. So it's something we have to do experimentally or as part of the therapy. And we still have to develop a lot of that technology if yeah, it's even yeah. possible. Yeah, I can talk about this all day, but we're going to move on. So I know that you was recently the driving force behind an R01, right? That was grant to Julie. And this is part of the Transformative Research Award program. Could you tell us more about that? Is that is that a part of an existing R01 or a different or new R01? Like, are you, um, how are you eligible for that? Yeah. So it's a new, it's an independent R01. You present it. It's an amazing system that they have that it's, for example, this one was open to all fields of under the NIH. I guess there were some restrictions, but you could present novel ideas that had to be transformative, radical, high risk, high reward, and you did not need preliminary experiments. Your lab did not need preliminary data, which was our case. We didn't have any, but we justified all of the project based on existing data of other research labs. The thing is that in these type of awards, you can there's, there aren't going to be any labs that have all that experience already because they wouldn't be transformative or they're likely not transformative. If you already have that experience, you've already published. So you're grabbing for many different areas and putting them together. And it's unlikely that you will have experiences in all those fields. And which I, which is, I think why it's, it's such a good idea to not require preliminary data on those things. But yeah, it's a new R01 that you present and it's just, it's amazing. It's an amazing system. They have a symposium. Specific that only people that have won the awards related to these projects can go, and it's just amazing. You meet incredible people. It's just impossible. Is nothing seem to be like a common subject there. Amazing. So you were one of the nineteen awardees. One of nineteen in two in twenty twenty three. Yes. Yeah. So I know that you're what your this award. I know there's some parts that's confidential. So what can you tell us about this this project? So this really, this project started because we had a lot of limitations on the type of drugs we can use because usually the drugs are delivered in bulk to the human body. Bulk is like a pretty rough word, but they are like, if you administer them intravenously, they're not going to be selective. They're going to get everywhere. Mm -hmm. The cases of, for example, of antibodies used to clear amyloid beta flakes, you administer them intravenously and the amount of antibody that actually reaches their the target is uh, really minute, really small. Yeah. So you have room for all these off-target effects on all sorts of different organs. And we wanted to, also from the experience with uh, Senolytics uh, that we had tested that we, we saw they were not, we could not use them to selectively eliminate certain cells. So we decided to develop a system with which you can actually take drugs to your targets and make them right there. So basically the whole idea behind it was the, the ability to do targeted delivery of drugs. And that we think would inaugurate a new possibility of combination therapy. So all these diseases that are thought to be uncurable, or there have not been cured in many decades of research, they all have a lot of single compounds, drugs, that are highly effective in doing what they're supposed to do. Despite the criticism, amyloid beta clearing antibodies do what they're supposed to do. They clear amyloid beta and they do it very well. Tau clearing antibodies, you could probably say the same thing of several of them. Anti-inflammatories, all these drugs work very well. The problem is that when you want to put them into a cocktail, they have so many off-target effects. They're administered in bulk. So they're, everything's affecting everything. And the more stuff you put in there, the worse it is. So we decided to develop this technology so we could 
do targeted delivery of an unlimited number of drugs at the same time. The difference is that we the production is limited in space and time. So you want to deliver drugs to certain areas of the brain, just deliver it right there. And then you don't have a limit on combination therapy. Yeah, so it's uh, like you're getting rid of the side effects. And then, so how important is dosing or dosage of the drugs? The dosage is more complicated with the systems we're using. Our systems are autonomous, so they'll basically stop delivering drugs once the pathology is gone. So you can design them in that way, right? Mm -hmm. So that's how we can control the dose. There's other ways, but we don't have the same control as, say, when you're administering intravenously. However, people, when we administer intravenously, we lose control of that dose as soon as it goes into the circulation and you want it to get to a specific area, right? Yeah, it's more targeted and you can just target the pathology where you want it. It seems pretty cool. It seems really promising. It seems like you're giving Big Pharma a second chance. At yes, yeah, the idea is all these drugs, there's been all this criticism against amyloid antibodies and there's you're criticizing aducanumab or criticizing lecanemab and then talking about your therapy is the alternative, right? But if you think about it, we're considering Alzheimer's disease as a multifactorial disease, right? As a multifactorial disease, you want to target A, B, C, and D. So if, if A, B, C, and D need to be targeted simultaneously to cure the disease, we will never cure Alzheimer's by just targeting A or just targeting B or just uh-huh. D. Right. Yeah. And so clinical trial failures are exactly what to expect, even when a drug is working. Yeah. So even when a drug is a good part of a combination therapy, it shouldn't cure any d- the disease if it's part of a monotherapy. Yeah, that's a good point. So all these drugs that have been tested in big pharma and the clinical trials are set up to test monotherapy. All these drugs that have been tested on big pharma as monotherapy, they might be rescuable. All of that investment might be rescued as part of the combination therapy. Man, imagine how much money pharma would save, right? If all the trials would be successful at each stage. So that, that's what I was saying. Lots of these drugs are amazing. Like they're pretty incredible in doing what they're supposed to do. They do it. The problem is that they're not curing the disease, but it's not necessarily because the drug is not working. It's yeah. because our setup is yeah. not the right one. It's getting too diluted. We're not doing combination. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks for sharing. I can't wait to see results and any published data on BioArchive one one of these days. I know it's still early in the yep. season, but I know you're a workhorse in the lab. I've seen you on the weekends. So yeah, yeah. yeah um, we have to work a lot. So one question: What's your favorite part of being a scientist? Is it just the learning aspects of it and getting to see the results? How do you enjoy science? Well, one of the things I enjoy about science is that I'm doing something about my own mortality and my loved one's mortality. Mm-hmm. So I, the fact that I'm working on it gives me a lot of peace. Uh, and then there's the fun part. Yes. Always learning the creative processes. Those aha moments are really powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's that's pretty amazing. Yeah. It's, I I'm basically sure. don't work. I play. Yeah, exactly. It's your playground. Really, right. Yeah. 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 Other than, I guess, how else do you spend your time if you're when you're not at the lab? So I'm like now I'm caught, I'm coming I'm going back and forth sometimes to Cody. My partner lives here in Cody, Wyoming. Now I'm working remotely from here, so that takes some time. But as leisure, I go running with my dogs, basically to keep. A lot of times it's just to keep my older dog. He's 13, but he can still run six miles easy. So I'm trying to keep him young while we figure out how to keep them younger. And uh, motorcycles. Yeah, motorcycles are my sort of passion apart from science. Oh, that's fun. 
Okay, it seems like we're running out of time. Last question. So there's a lot of young scientists coming into the longevity field these days. There's a lot of programs that are set up for younger scientists, people in high school who are really interested in aging. So there's a lot of curriculum around that now, even in med school too. I think there's some general focus on aging and biology of aging, which is amazing. Do you have any words of wisdom you'd like to share to the young scientists out there? I mean, to the young scientists that are getting into labs, I guess I'm going to say that this is more of a complex concept, this type one and type two errors, directed mm -hmm. hypothesis. So anyone that wants to research that a bit like, or kind of think about it, like you, you need to think about type two error, directed hypothesis or projects, experiments, plans. But mm -hmm. yes, just make sure you read it a lot. Make sure you have your own theories you enjoy and make sure you have a good or an easy to measure dependent variable. So you, you want to be, have your theories tested and either positively or negatively. The worst is when it's not positive or not negative. That's when you're going to be losing four or five years based on faith. That's um, true. Yes. So that, that will help a lot. The problem is when you get, you're getting ambiguous results and you're not entirely convinced and you keep on, keep on researching and doing experiments and you'll never know. Yeah. So you want, are the cells in the cell cycle and you have a marker that will tell you yes, no. So you can test your hypothesis. Yes, no. Yeah. But the type of dependent variables that are going to take you to there, maybe yes, maybe no. Those are very dangerous. So you need to keep those in mind. Yeah. And keep up to date with the technology and the literature, yes. basically. Or you can just hire Shaska to be your consultant and <laughs> it will save you some time or even choose him as a mentor. But well, I've, I've wasted a lot of time. That's why I know it. Yeah. Yeah. PhD is five years, right? Five to six years. So there's a lot. But it, the nice thing is that when you're surrounded by people, there's a lot of collaborative efforts too. And you can work through it sometimes together as a lab. Yeah. Ask people with more experience. Don't be afraid. Yeah. Ask them. Yeah. And don't be afraid to present your results too. You're not going to get very far. You're like, oh, I don't have enough results yet, Radita. You could, uh, okay, that's all we have time for. If you have any other questions for Chaska, I think you can find him on LinkedIn. Um, again, thank you, Chaska, for sharing your journey with us. I really enjoyed our conversation. To everyone else who's listening and watching, thank you. And stay tuned for more scientific spotlights.